Hello and welcome to the Renatus podcast, produced by Renatus Capital Partners. For those of you who haven't heard of Renatus, we're a private equity company based in Dublin. I'm Greg Dilger and our guest today is the low-profile legend Stan McCarthy, the former CEO of Kerry Group. Stan joined Kerry on a graduate trainee program in 1976 and retired 41 years later, having spent almost 10 years as CEO. Based in the USA for much of that time, he made a phenomenal contribution to Kerry Group. In fact, when he became CEO in 2007, Kerry's market cap was around $3 billion. When he retired from Kerry in 2017, it was closer to $15 billion. Around that time, he was invited to join the board of Ryanair as a non-executive director. And in a few years, he had succeeded David Bonderman as chairman. We had planned to record this podcast chat a few weeks ago when Stan was in Dublin for Ryanair's AGM, but events conspired against us and we did it remotely a few days later from his home in Chicago. So before asking Stan about his incredible career in Kerry uh, and his current role in Ryanair, I asked him to tell us a little bit about his early life before Kerry Group. Well, I I was born uh, into a family of seven kids on a farm in, in North Kerry. Uh, I was the second youngest and uh, learned very quickly uh, how to survive with a big family and on a dairy farm. And so uh, dairying, you could say, is in my DNA from the from the very first moments I came into this world. And uh, yeah. it stuck with me throughout my career. Um, I went to the local school and then I was, uh, my mother was convinced that I should go to uh, boarding school which I did do in Kilkenny for five years, and then came back to Kerry, uh, went to the junior college in in Tralee for a couple of years, and then started looking for a job. Um, I was fortunate to get a job with Kerry, which had a graduate recruitment program that had just started, and they encouraged me to go to, uh, to get an accounting qualification which I did over the weekends and nighttime, going to uh, courses in Dublin and Cork and what have you. So that took me several years, and uh, in the mid uh, t- took me into the mid twenties, let's say. And all that time, I was at home uh, playing football, working, studying, and really, once I qualified as an accountant, I had an awful lot of free time in my hands, and then. Uh, Dennis Brosnan at the time and uh, the CFO asked me would I go to the US for six months uh, and that was in 1984. That was a pretty bold or gutsy move for a local lad. Um, Stan, had you expressed a, an interest in going abroad before that? I, I'm not I'm not sure I had expressed it but I think that I felt that it was an opportunity for me from a career perspective. It being somewhat pioneering I was reporting to uh, uh, Finbar Driscoll, who opened up the office at the time, and I my skill set was in accounting, and so I was there very much in an administrative capacity. I always remember the the, the acquisition. I think Btrim was the sort of big acquisition that, that sort of got you going in the states. Was that had you did you own Btrim at that time, or was it was it to come? No, it was really the first office uh, for Kerry outside of outside of Ireland. Okay, and basically at that point in time, Kerry was exporting casein from Ireland to the U- U.S. and selling it through brokers. 
We carry acknowledge at that time that it was over dependent on subsidies from the EU and it needed to, if it was to grow as a business, it needed to expand outside of casein. And so the strategy that evolved is that we need to follow where the casein is going. And it was used as an ingredient in, um, in many, many products uh, throughout the uh, throughout US food chain. So that sort of kind of evolved into an ingredient strategy and we tried to buy some companies, even tried to buy Beatrice. Beatrice at that point mm-hmm. in time was a conglomerate that was going through massive structural changes with parts of it being, essentially it being broken up. We couldn't yeah. buy it, so we decided to build our own facility in in uh, in Jackson, Wisconsin, which is where I found uh, a facility, uh, which was a pharmaceutical building uh, that we equipped with uh, basically spray drying and blending equipment to get going in ingredients. Mm-hmm. However, in two and uh, let me get my years right. In 1988, uh, Kerry was successful in acquiring Beatream uh, at the end of 88. And as in from the 1st of January 89, uh, Kerry owned uh, Beatream and we merged the two businesses uh, together, in he- which was headquartered in Beloit, Wisconsin. Yeah, I think it's... it's uh... It's hard to um, imagine it now. Obviously, we're, we're many, many years later, but that was pretty pioneering stuff back in the day for an Irish creamery, wasn't it? Exactly. I mean, Kerry was known as a, as a cooperative and uh, it was, uh, a, well, it had transformed into a public company, I guess, in 1986. But um, it was uh, recognized as a dairy cooperative and dairy essentially is in the DNA of Kerry and continues to this day from a, more technological mm. perspective. However, the two most striking parts of that acquisition, one is the magnitude of it, which was over 130 million, which was more than the market cap of Kerry at the time. Yeah. But secondly, what it did is it transformed Kerry. Instead of it having a reputation just in supplying protein or casein protein to the US market, it opened the door into the retail food manufacturers uh, throughout mm. the U.S. with a stellar customer base. So mm. that enabled us to sort of experience and appreciate the importance of food science and food technology in a much yeah. broader yeah. marketplace than the traditional just yeah. casein industry. I think the next big move for the company um, uh, was probably the acquisition of DCA. I think that was around 1995. Is that that, that, right? that, that that's correct but but just to recognize at the beginning of the 90s uh, we had opened manufacturing facilities in Mexico Brazil and then start kind of started in Asia at that point in time but we were a public company uh, we were viewed as a growth company uh, we were not over leveraged at all in fact we were very comfortable from that perspective and so a company called DCA uh, came along, which in of itself was a little bit conflicting because in it, it had a bakery business and some equipment businesses that, that, that did not fit the strategy, but it had a very valuable coatings business, which brought us into food service. 
And up until mm -hmm. that point in time, we weren't very successful in food service, to be quite honest. And uh, that is hugely critical or proved mm -hmm. to be hugely critical for the next 10 years and obviously into, into the business today in terms of the complexity of, of uh, servicing the food service industry. Mm. I suppose one, one has to imagine to draw that period, Kerry continued to grow geographically, grow technologically, and instead of just being in food, uh, uh, we invested in flavor acquisitions, which in turn brought us into the beverage industry. So now we were touching on many, many aspects of the food and beverage industry throughout the globe. Uh, uh, while expanding the, the technologies. And we ran them as business units, which, mm -hmm. uh, while though effective, they also became somewhat problematic because we got so significant that we had many technologies and many business units supplying into the same customers. So you can imagine the, 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 the problem of dealing with a customer Pick, pick anyone, pick a McDonald's or a Starbucks or whatever, mm. and you're supporting them around the globe and you have different units supplying different technologies in, into, the, into those mm. customers. And to be quite frank, we were fumbling from time to time. Yeah. And, and that was an issue. And it was an issue both for the customer and both internally. So we took that on board and uh, it was a very difficult uh, problem to fix as an organization that essentially was going very well, but we knew it wasn't right for the future or fit for purpose. Mm. Yeah. In the US, we came across, I, I remember coming across this article where I just, something just, just grabbed me and it was about technologies, markets, customers, technologies, markets, customers. And I went back to the group in, in Beloit and I says, this has to be it. We've got a series of technologies we supply into markets and in those markets are a series of customers. And we took that model and built it out and uh, reconfigured the whole of the North American business mm -hmm. around that business model by also including applications capabilities, which in turn led us to the decision of creating a global technology center in Beloit, Wisconsin. And it started to work very, very well, way, way better than we had anticipated and customers gravitated towards it. And it suddenly became sort of, uh, how to put it, the model that we addressed uh, when I became CEO of Kerry in 2000, mm. January 1, 2008, I guess. Uh, where we looked to replicate that throughout the globe uh, and, and build a global architecture around the technology structure, if you will. Mm. That, that was a, quite a, a, a difficult uh, challenge, but we, we did it, I have to say, quite effectively, um, recognizing that in 2008, the world was coming down around us. And yeah. We had to carry, while though it was not over leveraged, we had to readdress our financing and come up with a new consortium of banks, which uh, I uh, compliment our CFO and treasurer uh, who put that together and we signed off on it, I think, mm -hmm. in it may have been February of 2009. 
can I ask you about your your appointment as CEO? Was that was there sort of visibility of that? Did you did you see that coming? Was it sort of obvious, or how did it come about? To be quite frank about it, the the actual appointment probably started in two thousand and six at the Ryder Cup, uh, which was in uh, the K Club, and I was in Ireland with customers that we were hosting at the Ryder Cup. And I was approached by the senior independent director at the time. And with subsequent meetings with the chairman and the senior independent director, I just said, I, I cannot relocate my family to Ireland. My wife is American. My three kids yeah. are in school here. And, yeah. and I said, I appreciate the difficulty uh, of changing uh, CEOs and rest assured that I will support anybody uh, you choose to put in that role. That, that went on for some time and, and eventually we came to a compromise and I relocated to Chicago to be near O'Hare Airport and agreed to uh, have a an apartment in by corporate office in Tralee. And I committed yeah. to five, my wife and I, we agreed that we give it a, a five-year commitment. And I, I would have to sort of compliment the chairman at the time, Dennis Buckley, Kevin Kelly, and Hugh Friel in terms of allowing that, number one, uh, because it, it probably was a little bit unorthodox. And, uh, but I, I, in looking back on it, I think it was perhaps maybe a very worthwhile way of approaching the next chapter of Kerry because it brought a much more global perspective to it yes. than, than one yeah, might have absolutely. just from the prism of Tralee. Uh, and the corporate office. So there are arguments for it and there are arguments against it. But overall, I think it was for the benefit of the greater Kerry. Uh, and it, and that came true over time. And Stan, the, the, there was always a bit of tension with the, with the co-op over the years. There was obviously they were interested in certain things. You're on a global kind of mission. Did that, was that a, uh, bothersome for you or did you just get on with your main strategy and just um, just deal with that? I, I, I think we dealt with it. Uh, I was very fortunate to have a very good executive uh, friend who just passed away, actually, John O'Callaghan, who managed the uh, agribusiness and the farmers on, on a day-to-day basis. I did engage with them uh, uh, on uh, co-op board meetings, mm. which I served on for a period of time until I stepped back from that. And then I would meet with them every year. Uh, I would dedicate a week in the month of March, typically, uh, where I would go out and meet with with the farmers. And it was important because, Mm. I mean, A, they were a very large shareholder and they they needed to know about their investment. Um, Sure. Was there discourse and discussions and disputes about the price of milk? Of course, that's kind of the nature of the industry, if you will. But, But by and large... Uh, the farming community, I found them to be very, very supportive. And um, I thought there were some very, very intelligent people that were not just farmers, but were astute businessmen as well and and knew the value that Kerry could create longer term. So um, I found that I, I didn't find it bothersome. I found it actually personally rewarding because having grown up in a family farm, I felt I was... Uh, I, I owed something to that community. 
Stan, when you, when you became, as I mentioned in the um, in the intro, uh, when you became uh, uh, CEO of Kerry, and and I found this information, uh, just to be clear, I did, you didn't offer it to me, but the market cap of Kerry when when you became CEO was was in and around three billion, and when you left in uh, re- retired in two thousand and seventeen, it was in about sixteen billion. Um, what? What and obviously without getting into huge details, a lot going on, a lot of acquisitions. You know, what were the big things? What were the big things in your time as CEO that moved the dial and moved that market cap and created that value? Well, one of the earlier initiatives was to, and it took several years before I was finished, was to tidy up the portfolio because we had a few poor performing businesses that we needed to get rid of, uh, and some of them were controversial in terms of like getting rid of the dairies, which were a huge part of the company when we went public, uh, mm. and certainly with the uh, with the farming community. But it was such a volatile business, and technology and infrastructure had improved so much in Ireland that it was a crowded marketplace, and we needed to divest of it. Uh, one of the most important steps that started to occur uh, was in 2009 and 10 when we started looking throughout the business and building that architecture around uh, technologies, markets, and customers, and rolling that out around the globe. And that was the precursor for us to establish a template where we could implement one information system throughout the globe. Mm. Long story short, I remember going to the board and going to shareholders asking for permission to spend 350 million euros on implementation of SAP and some other uh, modules mm. around the globe, taking over the Crown Plaza Hotel during the downturn in Ireland, picking people out of the business worldwide, and, and going on this journey that was going to take seven years. Investors and people said, well, why does it take seven years? We knew from experience that there were many companies that rushed that and and tripped and failed. And not to get into that, I have to compliment the team in terms of how they approached that. And I put some senior executives in charge of it uh, to make sure it was done properly. And our mantra all the time was, I'll forgive you for being late. That's okay, but get it done right. Um, Mm. Needless to say, that also then led to the whole concept of global tech connectivity from a technology perspective. In 2012, I think we started the process of building the Global Technology Center in NACE with the support of uh, Enterprise Ireland and the Irish government at the time. Uh, the, uh, and they were very, very helpful. And that in itself was, was, I, was a huge risk because one is, Ireland was not in a good state. And is that uh, uh, is that where we would need to put our technology headquarters from a customer perspective? And we debated that back and forth and said, yes. I got some grief, or a little bit of controversy over not putting it in Kerry, but that would not work because you needed mm-hmm. proximity to an airport. You needed proximity to a professional workforce and whether it's young people that want to live in the city or people with families access to school. So that that was hugely critical. And then we built out from those 
uh, technology centers around the globe in, in Asia, South America, and so on and so forth. So basically, I think with the, with the information systems in place, the R&D structures in place, we felt that we were putting together a, sp- a scalable model that was primed for growth. And I think the market appreciated that, which back yeah. to your earlier question, what drove uh, the valuation? I think it was the market's belief in the growth of the company. We, we, we didn't expand our focus on the foods business. At the time, that was, a am going to say, a billion, billion two, making probably 100, 120 million euros a year. So it was a cash cow for us that enabled us to continue invest in the food technology space. We, we then tried to change the perception of Kerry from being just an ingredients company or some people still think is a dairy company. We, we, we essentially became a, a food science company focused on taste and nutrition. And that is how uh, the company is, is uh, represented today. Uh, it became a B2B business. It's, mm. uh, I forget how many, probably thousand plus of food scientists around the globe focus on their respective technologies, customers and markets. And I think it set the standard uh, for a lot of our competitors in terms of the approach to uh, the food and beverage industry around the globe. Uh, and it certainly paved the way for Kerry to continue to grow into other aspects of the marketplace where the technology is relevant. For example, people might not realize that Kerry is a large supplier into the pharmaceutical industry of excipients that are used to uh, carry drugs in tablet form, for example. Yes. Uh, it, food preservation, we like it. The consumer now reads its label, and if it's all natural, then what's keeping that all natural and preserving the food? And it's the technology that Kerry developed along the way. So it's become a very sophisticated company from a technology perspective. Mm. I'm I'm thinking too, Stan. I'm just looking at the, and again, this is only a small amount of them, but the sort of customers. You know, I'm looking at Nestle, Danone, Unilever, Kellogg's, Mars, PepsiCo. Diageo, and then in food service, McDonald's, Burger King, KFC, Subway, Pizza Hut, Starbucks, 7-Eleven. Like I'm thinking you're kind of you're connected to those companies. You're, you're providing um, expertise to those companies. And as they grow, and they're all very uh, growth-oriented companies, you're growing with them. Very much so. And at the same time, opening up new markets, uh, One of the lessons that we learned along the way was that you can have a technology, but you probably need local applications. In other words, you can have a technology that may exist from a dairy flavor competency in call it Ireland or in Italy, but you need to know how to apply that technology in a product in India or or, or China or wherever. And it's, it's a question of marrying up that technology with the applications expertise. That was hugely critical. Yeah, just to move on to to acquisitions during your um, during your time, um, there's a kind of dizzying number of acquisitions. Don't know the number, but I'm seeing a lot of these companies have none, none of us would ever have heard of. I'm seeing companies in Asia um, that you've you've acquired, which clearly fit into your 
your platform and fit into your strategy. How, how did you how, how, for, how do you eg- execute those those so many acquisitions and 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 um, also how do you integrate them safely and well? Well, first and foremost, uh, we have Kerry has developed uh, an acquisitions an M and A team uh, based both corporately and at local level in terms of uh, the ability to execute, but. Along with that, in terms of the executive level around uh, the structure of the organization, they will be tasked with the responsibility of looking for acquisitions that fit with the overall carry strategy. Mm. And they would bring those to the table. And they would be looked at from a number of different aspects. For example, uh, we acquired a company uh, uh, in the smoke, natural smoke uh, space in, in the U.S., I forget back in 2014 or 15 sometime. But the rationale there was was hugely uh, successful in the US, but had a huge opportunity to grow in the rest of the world. And they didn't have the infrastructure to do that. So you would look at an acquisition both from a technological perspective and a geographical opportunity perspective. And equally so, if you wanted to get started in a, in a geography as well, in terms of opening the door for customers that are strong regional players, not global players, but strong regional players that can play an important part uh, uh, for the growth of the company. And I think the important thing as well in terms of the strength of the of Kerry is, I, back at the time, I think there was no customer over three or 4% of, of the total revenue. So you are never overexposed to one customer. Uh, and that's, why I just emphasize the regional players a little bit as well, that they play a very important part in the growth history of the company. Did you typically put one of the guys from the center into these companies or did you, the local management, stay in situ and, and just keep going? Each one was different. You you obviously had to put somebody in from our own organization straight away. I mean, the most important thing we learned over the years is that when you acquire a company, you have to integrate it into the carry model straight away. To do that, you have to have a proper integration structure and template to be able to do that in terms of making sure you keep employees, remunerate employees in terms of benefits, etc., the same as all other, other carry employees, and you avoid the pitfalls of having too many, how I put it, uh, silos, if you will, uh, throughout mm, the organization. Yeah. But most importantly, you needed to know and understand the company that you just paid out millions and millions of dollars for. So we would take our time. You know, yes, there's always the, or nearly always the, the opportunity for synergies, but that's not the most important thing to realize. The first thing you realize is understand the company the capability, the strengths of the company, and how you can uh, continue to grow that business. And uh, you would then integrate it and maybe uh, realize the uh, synergies. I don't know. We're we're probably talking half an hour about Kerry here, and I could go on for a lot more, but we said we'd um, we divided between your, your former interests and your current interests. So we've got to move on to Ryanair now, which... It's, it's interesting that you would choose for your retirement to join a company like Ryanair. It certainly wasn't a, 
a cushy a cushy number. So you joined the board of um, of Ryanair in two thousand and seventeen, and you were quite soon afterwards you've become chairman. So yeah, it's a really interesting move. You've come with a, a huge uh, port or huge um, CV in the food industry, and you find yourself in the uh, the aviation industry. Tell us about the sort of that transition. Well. It's kind of interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, I gave a five-year commitment to Kerry, and then we expanded it to 10 years. And I knew sort of having had discussions with uh, the chairman and the, and the said uh, back in, I'm going to say 2015, 16, that, you know, 10 years would be enough. And yeah, uh, process was initiated in Kerry. Simultaneous to that, and it was just through uh, uh, Ryanair reaching out, uh, the senior independent director uh, at Ryanair reached out to me, who I knew, and asked, would I be interested and would I be prepared to meet with them? And mm-hmm. I met with uh, David Bonderman, Michael O'Leary, James Osborne, and Kieran McLaughlin yeah. uh, as a group, and then met each of them individually several times over the course of 2016. And I mean, I, for me, I, I purposely stayed off boards because my, I just didn't have the time with the lifestyle that I was living while I was on Gary. So uh, I knew that I was going to be stepping down at the end of 17. I thought the timeline suited. Um, I wanted to get in out of the food industry uh, because I'd spent 41 years in it, essentially. Yeah. I wanted the, I liked the attachment uh, to Ireland and I was interested in in, in uh, just the company. I thought it was a fantastic story. And to be quite honest about it, I had to do my own research and and, and, and learn about the the genesis of, of, of Ryanair and, and the history of it, which is equally as, I want to put it interesting as Kerry, uh, I mean, in terms of how it came about. Why do you think they came after you? Do you think they might have seen you as a future chairman at that point? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they, they could have made that prediction at the time, because when you bring on somebody new into a successful company, how do you know whether they're suitable for chairman or not? And quite sure. frankly, I didn't have the pedigree for... Uh, being a chairman have not been on other public companies. So I, I think it would be somewhat of an exaggeration. I mean, having... <laughs> it would, but at, at the same time, I think there's no doubt that Reiner would have, wouldn't have been short of um, candidates and possibilities for directors and indeed chairman. And it's just interesting that they plucked you, plucked you out of the food industry. One of the interesting comments, I remember having a one-on-one meeting with uh, David Bonderman on a cold winter's evening in Midway Airport in Chicago. And I said, wh- wh- why me? I mean, wh- wh- do I, what can I contribute? And he, said, he, he was a w- very wise man. He just said, Stan, we've checked you out. And um, yeah. it was his way of maybe passing a compliment or whatever, but it was, yes, uh, that was no his doubt. perspective. Huge compliment. But I, I, I think at the end of the day, there was a very competent skill set around the board table. Uh, from an aviation perspective, and perhaps my experience with the public markets, uh, equity markets, 
would uh, bring some value to the board as well as as well as having been on the board of Kerry for however I can't remember twenty years probably. Um, yeah, uh, brought some value. So you're well settled in as chairman of Ryanair uh, now. Tell us a bit about the really important issues facing you and your board right now. You know, I, I think Ryanair has proven itself to make very good decisions in times of crisis. All through the years in terms of when it acquired planes or did contracts with Boeing, who is their supplier for, uh, for airplanes. Um, the ability, and not unlike Kerry, Ryanair maintains a very strong balance sheet. Uh, once you have a strong balance sheet, you have a lot of freedom to do what you think is mm-hmm. right, uh, obviously with calculated risk. But the ability to be able to make, to do, engage in large contracts with Boeing during times of crisis was proved uh, time and time again to be very beneficial for uh, Ryanair. We came through COVID uh, better than any other airline, I would argue, around the globe mm-hmm. in terms of minimal layoffs. Yeah, some uh, uh, cutting in pay down to 80%, but restored it very quickly. So, mm-hmm. and instead of recovering to pre-COVID levels, Ryanair is enjoying growth levels of, I don't know, 10% plus in volume, uh, as well as a much enhanced uh, fleet and enhanced uh, connectivity throughout Europe and adjacent country, adjacent countries like Israel, Jordan, Morocco. Um, we have just Ryanair has just recently in, in, entered into a new contract out through twenty thirty three for the next uh, generation of the seven three seven Max ten airplanes, uh, which gives line of sight in terms of continued growth. Uh, for the organization, and it can now work on the infrastructure behind that to uh, be successful. Now, there are challenges coming about from, uh, obviously, the environmental side. The aviation industry contributes about 2 to 3% of, of total carbon emissions, which in itself sounds small, but it's not. It's, it's significant, uh, but it is addressing it through uh, uh technology and advancing the technology around much more efficient planes and as well as research around uh, sustainable aviation fuels where uh, we're continuing to try that even though they're cost prohibitive at this point in time they are uh, uh, the way of the future in fact there are mandates in there that the fuel companies will have to include uh, levels of sustainable aviation fuel by 2030 uh, in the EU and in the UK. I think the, the percentiles are different. But um, uh, there are challenges, but they're, they all fall well within the competency of the organization and, and the skill sets exist within the company to address those. And I, I think the, the obvious question to ask you as well, you're, you're working, you're, as, you're chairman now of a company with the, a phenomenal uh, force of nature CEO uh, that Michael O'Leary is. What what has it been like working with Michael? For me, it's a pleasure to work with Michael because one, uh, from a call it business perspective, our our values are, and, and our ideas are not very different. 
our, pers- our personality is made different. I, I grant you that. Um, but uh, Michael is, uh, is a very, a very good businessman. He's a very uh, no-nonsense kind of guy. He is always available when I need to have a conversation, as I am to him, if we have, which happens at least once a week. Uh, not a week goes by where we're up to speed on what's going on in the company. So he is very, very approachable. He does not shy away from delicate topics and, and very approachable. And uh, I admire him for that. And I find him a pleasure to work with. Yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me at all. He's incredible. You're now chairman uh, of Reiner. It's a very, very different role to uh, the CEO role you played in Kerry. How are you finding that? First and foremost, it was a bit of a transition uh, because I was a business operator uh, most of my life. And you're in a very different position when you go on the board of a company. And kind of my rule of thumb from my experience is that it takes one to two years to know and understand your role and and understand the company, which is critical. So you look at the you look at the two roles and you try and define them and you know I have, a, I have a rule of thumb in terms of a CEO he has to be a good he or she has to be a good all rounder needs to be able to get things done needs to be strategic and has to be somewhat charismatic with all the constituents that you engage with shareholders uh, employees customers what have you you look at the role of a chairman and it's very different. I mean, the responsibility of the board rests on three things. One is governance. The other is uh, strategy to making sure that the company is living with the strategy that has been signed off on. And then it's about the performance of the executives. Now, it, the world has changed a little bit from, call it a governance perspective, in that mm. companies now are responsible to all stakeholders. It was not that long ago where the primary responsibility was just to shareholders. And as, as, that, as that evolution has taken place, um, boards have to be very cognizant of that. Now, the reality mm. is that you can only deliver on that if you have got long-term growth. Uh, you cannot do it without long-term growth. And it is my view and it is the view of the board of 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 Ryanair I think that we take a long-term view on how we grow the business and uh, make sure that we have uh, the appropriate strategy in place to deliver on that Mm. you you, cut maybe to the chase a little bit you have to trust the executives to know what they're to do on a day-to-day basis however you have to make sure that you have the appropriate governance in place and the appropriate uh, skill sets around the board table to make sure that uh, you are looking out for all uh, stakeholders. Now, one of the interesting challenges I found and learnings is, I said earlier that about it takes a year to two to get to know and understand the company. One of the Mm -hmm. things that you learn very quickly is that you need to know and understand the culture of the company. In some mm. respects, the culture of Ryanair and Kerry, for example, are very, very different. I serve on some other boards as well, family companies. And you, you, it's really critical that you get to know and understand the culture of the company when you uh, 
become a board member. Um, we know from our studies that um, culture will eat strategy for breakfast, right? And um, to, to sort of, in fact, I think I was asked a question at, at one of the uh, uh, annual shareholders meetings about the culture of, of, of Ryanair. And I basically said that it's a culture that has been extremely successful and anybody coming in that would try and change that could do a huge amount of damage, for example. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably one of the greatest learnings about going on uh, boards of different companies. You get to really appreciate and understand the culture of a company and what makes it tick and perform. You've been living in Chicago now for, for a long time, and it probably explains your kind of low profile uh, around Ireland. I, I did ask a few people over the last few weeks uh, just playing around, uh, ask him who was the chairman of Reiner, and they they hadn't, um, they 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 didn't they didn't know it was you. And uh, I I think you know I think you're the fact that you've been based in the U.S. Probably even when you were in Kerry, you, were, you had a sort of relatively low profile, and I, I'm pretty sure that you don't have any problem with that. But apart from um, what we see over here, you're you're active on a number of things in the U.S. as well. Tell us a little bit about what you, what else you do uh, now in your retirement. Yeah, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to uh, spend the winters in Florida. I've had enough of winters in Chicago over 35 years or whatever. Yeah. But um, uh, we have three kids and uh, one is still in college. Uh, two are, are working right now. So uh, we had kids later in life. Uh, but uh, and they're doing fine, you know, they've... Uh, uh, done well, uh, frustrating at times, but just like every other parent. Um, so they, they still keep us busy and we're a pretty close family. Um, but I, I, I serve on some other boards. One is in the electronic space. One is in the uh, actually food processing space, private company in the Midwest. And um, I do some investing in uh, food and ag tech startups. Uh, which one could argue is a pretty bear market these days with the with the interest rates being where they are. But I find that interesting in terms of keeping me current on technology and, and what's going on in that whole area. Um, so that in itself keeps me uh, moderately busy. And I presume, uh, I'm guessing if still quite a lot of Kerry stock somewhere, uh, I presume you keep a nice close eye on, on what's going on in Kerry these days. Yeah, uh, uh, it's still an important part of my portfolio, uh, fortunately, yeah. uh, perhaps. Um, and I think it, it will be uh, into the future. And obviously, mm. we're all very proud of what has been accomplished in Kerry, and mm. uh, which can be dangerous from an investment perspective. You shouldn't be emotional about it. But however, uh, we... we we we're not over indexed uh, from that perspective, from a risk perspective. But yeah, I still keep in touch with uh, some colleagues. But you know, I'm gone out of there, going on six years, so it's it's a changing organization, and a lot of people have moved on as well at my age. Stan, I think we'll um, we'll call it a, a day there. It's been very very interesting catching up with you great to hear the Kerry story again and let's do it from your perspective uh, and some of the issues and just listening to you 
uh, talking about them is fascinating. Uh, and obviously then hearing you in your new role uh, and doing so well as chair of Ryanair, um, that's no surprise, of course. That's also no surprise that Ryanair came looking for you uh, based on your track record and the way you um, conducted yourself in Kerry Group. Uh, so thanks again. It's been um, it's been very enjoyable. Um, and hopefully we'll catch up with you on your next trip to Ireland. Thanks a million, Stan. Thank you very much, Greg. It was a pleasure.